The views and opinions we express in this podcast are our own and do not represent the official position of the Youth in Government Program or the YMCA. Hello and welcome to YAG and Recreation. Each week, we pick a topic and talk about various aspects of YAG using that topic as a guide. This week, we're veering from our standard format to highlight something that's less of a YAG-specific issue, but we'll definitely bring it all back around to hopefully add some value to the program. Joining me, as he likes to do, is my brother, James. Here I am. Um, And this week, we're going to talk about the filibuster. Ooh. Yeah. So, before we get into that, I do like to start us off with a little something. We've had a couple of YAG events recently, um, and at one of them we had an icebreaker that was to share something about what's been getting us through the pandemic and the associated, you know, distancing, quarantining. What I shared, uh, the more I thought about it, I was kind of inspired to share it here as well. So my household has spent quite a bit of time enjoying music videos from the band OK Go. If you've never seen them, I would really encourage you to go on to YouTube and check them out. They are amazing. They're creative. They're unexpected. They're sometimes super outrageous. Um, And we discovered that they post short making of videos that give you some insight and behind the scenes looks at how they pull everything off. Um, And in watching those making of videos, I really got a sense that the band members are super committed to their art. Um, They're willing to be weird to create magic. Um, they don't seem self-conscious, even when they're doing like just ridiculous things. Um, and they all jump in and do the stuff that's necessary to pull off the project. I, this probably does not really seem to tie into filibustering at all, but stick with me, <laughs> stick with me. James is going to spend a lot of this episode talking about a very nerdy topic that not everybody's up to speed on, including myself. Um, but there is no shame here. We should all get to really embrace and enjoy the things that we're passionate about and not feel bad or weird or awkward about all of that energy. Um, Spending the time in that Zoom room with a bunch of youth-led delegates recently um, for our district event, it was one of the most delightful things I've done in a long time. Um, It's so great to hear solid ideas from young people um, that they're passionate about. Um, They want to address the problems that they see, and they're excited for each other um, with the ideas that they hear. Um, So I'm going to wrap this up with a quote, because I do like to quote for these, um, the lyrics for an OK Go song called Needing Getting uh, begin, I've been waiting for months, waiting for years, waiting for you to change, but there ain't much that's dumber, there ain't much that's dumber than pinning your hopes on the change of another. Um, That song's not about the filibuster, Mm -hmm. anything political really at all, but I thought it was really inspiring. None of us should sit around and wait for somebody else to come in and fix things. We've got to jump in and make an attempt to address things that we see as problematic. And we've got to use all that passion and a lack of self-consciousness to boldly speak up and call others to action. That's great. You always say that. I know, but it really is. This time, (laughs) it's because this is an invocation for me. Like you're telling me not to feel bad about how painfully nerdy I am about to be. And I For sure. I really appreciate that kind of encouragement. You should be. You should be encouraged. Be are, yourself. Are, are these Nobody the... else is going to be you. 
he leads the guys who jump on the like treadmills like in yes yeah, yeah i the treadmills i um, was a long ago one i'm sure it was long ago i'm old um but i <laughs> but i uh i do remember thinking wow those guys must have worked hard at that uh so that's that's cool Well, and they do it they try to do most of their videos in a single take oh, that's incredible i mean i could go on and on the videos are Excellent. I'm going to look into it. We'll move on. I'm going to start out. I was trying to figure out what I had to offer here about the filibuster because I really am not that up to speed. So I looked up the etymology um, because I can Google. And um, I got some info from an NPR article. Um, The filibuster comes from the Dutch word for freebooter, and it's linked to piracy. Uh, Back in the 16th century, um, fleabooters would raid the Spanish colonies in the Caribbean And the stuff they took would be called booty, um, which is where that comes from. Hmm. Um, In the mid-1800s, the syllable was added to make it filibuster. um, And it took on a political meaning. Filibusters were people from the United States who would go to Central America or the Spanish West Indies and illegally encourage revolutions. Hmm. Um, The Oxford English Dictionary says the first time a legislator was called a filibuster, which is a noun there, Um, They were accused of obstruction. It was in 1889. Um, And then shortly thereafter, in 1890, we started using it as a verb. Um, And it was used to mean um, a tactic for taking a long time to obstruct Senate business. And uh, just a little quote from that article. um, Filibustering senators were, by extension, pirates raiding Congress for their own gain. So uh, that's where that comes from. That's incredible. (laughs) Uh, My own personal experiences with the filibuster are exclusively through pop culture, really, Um, Mm -hmm. other than things I see on the news about the possibility of the Senate using it for something. Mm -hmm. Um, But I definitely watched Parks and Rec and The West Wing and Scandal, um, and they've all used filibustering for an episode here or there. Um, And the more I think about it, I went back and watched an episode of Parks and Rec it's really romanticized to me. It's like a passion project for a character to like drive the story, but it's always about something where they're being really noble. Um, Leslie Nope says, all I want is the promise of democracy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't feel like our real life senators have such noble thoughts in (laughs) mind when they're thinking of using it. It seems like a way to squash the people who are going to make a decision and take it away from them, which I, you know, I think I always think back to our program where the, the rights of the minority are respected, but the will of the majority prevails. Mm. And this is a way to just kind of squash that. Mm. Mm. So um, that's what I have on the filibuster and that's all of my knowledge. So (laughs) I'm going to turn it over to you to tell us the for real stuff. Well, I'm sure that's not all your knowledge, but I appreciate you letting me, um, be a little nerdy about this and i will say it's easy to make mistakes in talking about the filibuster because senate procedural motions are a ridiculously arcane (laughs) subject area in general i i will make one of my patented mistakes this episode in talking about this something for people to find exactly um so we'll start with just what is a filibuster now here in 2021 before we talk a little bit about how we got here right now um nothing in the senate rules compels 
senators to stop talking about a bill because it's time to vote in general. And so if a senator wants to be recognized and speak, they can just keep doing that. And they can talk for almost as long as they like within very loose boundaries about how many speeches in a legislative day. So practically speaking, if the Senate wants to move forward with something, a cloture motion has to be filed saying, we're about to stop debating. And so oh, for every bill? For practically any bill that makes it through the Senate, a cloture motion will be necessary. If it's the naming of a post office, maybe they don't need to bother because they can just say, I think it's about time to vote and no one in the chamber is going to object. But anything substantive that any one of the hundred people in the United States Senate, some of whom are notoriously difficult people, <laughs> if, any, <laughs> if any of them wants to be difficult, they need a cloture motion. I won't describe the steps involved in a cloture motion, but it is not as simple as saying, I move for cloture. It involves a bunch of senators, a written document, a multiple day delay just to get to the vote on cloture. At that point, the rules as of right now are that 60 senators have to affirmatively vote for an end to debate. Um, and at that point, even if they succeed, 30 hours of debate are allotted post that cloture motion passing before the Senate can actually vote on the piece is of that legislation. 30 clock hours or 30 in session hours? Uh, this is going to get know. out Sorry. of my depth. It's a <laughs> okay. very good question. It is, okay. a, it is 30 hours of meaningful Senate work, but there's some weird definitions operating. Okay. So what I've just described, if it sounds like, how do they get anything done? Well, the answer is A, they don't. <laughs> and B, the only way they really function is unlike um, the way that most parliamentary bodies work, where you have a single item of business before you that you either have to dispense with or you have to table or something. The Senate has a workaround now where they have a sort of multi-track calendar where an item can be, more than one item of business can be on third reading um, as long as they've sort of divvied up the time and the day. Uh, again, this gets out of our depth pretty fast, but functionally what it means is if someone wants to filibuster a Senate item and the Senate hasn't figured out how to get rid of it, which again requires a lengthy process to get to a cloture motion, pass that motion, and then wait out the 30 hours, um, they can just sort of have that be part of their day, but then the rest of their day they can be doing other things. It's hard to count filibusters because sometimes um, when the majority knows that a bill will be filibustered and that they don't have the votes to force it through, they simply don't bother requiring the minority to filibuster. So it's hard to figure out how to count them, but the easiest way to count it is to count the formally filed cloture motions. Um, so these, are again, are extensive documents. Um, these, they're much more common these days than they were not that long ago. So Anna, when you and I were born over the course long of- Long ago in the dark ages. Long ago. Over the course of a two-year Congress, um, there were 30, 31 cloture motions filed over the course of those two years. Um, 
back when you and I were in youth and government, still a long time ago. Still, dinosaurs <laughs> were around, yes. The Congress uh, in our junior and senior years, uh, there were 69 cloture motions in the Senate for those two years. And the Congress that just ended, there were 328. So it has, it has <laughs> um, we're an order of magnitude more than there was. And even the Congresses in our youth in the early 80s, um, there were more of those cloture motions than there had been earlier in the century. So, um, I don't feel like I've heard the Senate doing enough to have that many cloture mm-hmm. motions. It's because at this point, basically any legislation of consequence, um, a cloture motion has to be filed in order to ensure that it can get through. Even when you know you can overcome the cloture motion, practically speaking, filibustering has gone from being a sort of unusual case in the Senate to being so common that there is simply no social penalty for a senator um, choosing to do it. So even let's say if a senator wants to filibuster the naming of a post office at this point, it's just routine. The majority just sighs, rolls its eyes and files a cloture motion. Now, as everybody who's reading the news sort of knows, right, um, not everything gets filibustered or not everything has to get that 60 vote threshold Right. Budget reconciliation, which is the vote that we're discussing right now, um, this COVID relief bill, uh, is being presented as a budget resolution. And that gets it around the 60 vote requirement. Um, Uh, Nominations to executive and judicial branches. This is something that has changed in the last 10 years. It's now true that those only need a simple majority. So you'll see people being approved to um, President Biden's cabinet with less than 60 votes. Um, This COVID relief bill probably will pass with 50 votes plus the vice president, um, assuming it does pass. Um, Those are exceptions. There are a couple of other kinds of resolutions that can't be filibustered because they arrive with a built-in limit to debate time. Um, Anything that doesn't arrive with that kind of limit um, can be filibustered. Uh, so is any of this sort of surprising? Because Anna, you are you're a person who is smart. You care about politics. You pay attention to the news. Do, I do. Does this more or less sound like what you've known about the filibuster? Is, is some of this kind of like new to you? Well, I mean, I know that there was something about like getting rid of the filibuster for the judicial nominees mm-hmm. a while, just recently, a while ago. Yeah. And I didn't understand how like. If they can get rid of it, why don't they just get rid of it? <laughs> um, and I'm not sure that this has clarified anything for me, but it is, it's kind of shocking that there are that many. Mm-hmm. I just truly, I feel like recently most of what I've heard about the Senate is that they're just not considering anything, mm-hmm. um, which is frustrating. Yes. So I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, in the, in say the, like the 1960s, um, the statistics are that about 25% of the bills introduced in the Senate ultimately became law. Um, okay. In the past few years, it's much closer to 2.5% of the bills introduced in the Senate that become law. Um, so I feel like I've heard at, at a state level, mm-hmm. bills don't come to the floor unless they're sure they have the votes. Mm-hmm. But that's not true of Congress? Um, bills are introduced you know, senators can introduce the bills, whether the bill is then brought back from committee and introduced onto the calendar for like a final vote. Yeah, that's something the majority leader handles. Um, okay, so it is it is the same. Yeah, in Congress, it's very that, like they wouldn't really bring something up unless they're sure of what will happen with it. That's true. 
And uh, you mentioned like, well, how is it that they can sort of get rid of it, but not really? What happens is the nuclear option, which is the silly name that this has been given, that has been used twice, once by a Democratic majority, once by a Republican majority, to break the filibuster in a limited way, what happens is somebody raises a point of order and says, hey, it is against the Constitution to require us to have a supermajority for this thing we're doing. And if a majority of the senators agree that, yeah, that's against the Constitution, then they just break the rule. And so the Democrats did that for um, all judicial nominations other than the Supreme Court. And then the Republicans said, well, let's break it for the court, the Supreme Court as well. Um, so any senator who wanted to, I mean, the, the threat hanging over the Senate right now is the Democrats could say, hey, the Constitution doesn't say anything about supermajorities for passing ordinary legislation. This, the filibuster has essentially prevented us from doing our constitutional duty. If they could get 50, 50 Democratic votes and the vice president to agree to that, then, then the filibuster would disappear from the Senate rules effectively. I will say just a couple of things about the history of the filibuster. How did we get here? It's not in the Constitution, which is something you'll hear from a lot of people who are critical of the filibuster. The Senate had a pretty ordinary previous question motion, much like a motion that we have in youth and government. Um, for them, it was a simple majority back then. But it, it got used so rarely that Aaron Burr, acting in his role as president of the Senate, recommended to the Senate, hey, you guys don't really need this. You should get rid of it. And the Senate said, yeah, we should. It took them decades to even realize that you could now abuse the rules to stall things. But eventually in the mid-19th century, some senators realized, oh, well, if we don't have a debate time limit and there's no motion left anymore to force a vote, you can stall things. And like, is the, the end date would be like, what, when the session expires? I mean, if the session expires and you haven't voted on it, it just, it just never got resolved. Does that work even if it's like a scheduled vacation time or whatever they have where they take weeks off? Yeah, recesses? or whatever they're called. Um, okay. Yeah, there's no limit on debate time in the Senate, as long as the senator wants to talk. And so that's how we get these talking filibusters, which is what you see in pop culture, right? The lone senator standing up for something. Unfortunately... They can't eat, they can't drink, right. they can't lean on anything. Right. Um, unfortunately, as um, you were talking about how it's these noble characters in pop culture, unfortunately, yeah. it's the absolute opposite in American history. The talking filibuster is largely used by senators, mostly uh, regressive Southern uh, Democratic senators in that era, who are trying to prevent civil rights legislation from coming to a vote. Um, the, oh, the rec jerks. Yes, the record held for a filibuster, Strom Thurmond, a famous mm. old racist, um, stood for more than 24 hours on the Senate floor trying to keep the Civil Rights Act of 1957 from passing. Ultimately, it I will passes. say, hmm? that's not television I would watch. No. So I don't blame <laughs> the people who make TV from like avoiding horrifying racists <laughs> being given a huge platform yes. to bully people. Yes, Parks and Rec made a, a good call there. They so, really did. So anyway, because the senators sort of discover this opportunity, um, in the 20th century, as this starts to become more common, the Senate has to figure out, well, how can we get business moving again? And for whatever reason, they decided rather than going back to the rule that 
they had initially and that the founders thought was a good idea to simply have, if a majority of the Senate is ready to vote, let's vote. Instead, they decided they wanted something, well, something that I have been calling a supermajority. But there's been some dispute about how many votes it should take to move things along. Yes. I looked up supermajority. Yeah. Senate.gov had an article oh, explaining it. Cool. They say that some supermajority votes are explicitly specified in the Constitution. Mm. Um, there's like five. Mm-hmm. And they're all very big, like, what is it? Overriding presidential vetoes, yeah. removing federal officers through impeachment proceedings, ratifying treaties. Mm-hmm expelling members mm. and proposing constitutional amendments mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but each chamber gets to determine its own the rules of its proceedings mm. mm-hmm. and so the things that i could find in here that require a supermajority, they do give all these sorts of different numbers invoking cloture requires the three-fifths vote of all senators so that's 60 out of the hundred mm-hmm. however a two-thirds vote of the senators present and voting is required to invoke cloture on measures or motions to amend the senate rules mm-hmm. so that would be two-thirds of the people in the room correct so a flexible number yeah and then it says once cloture has been invoked 30 hours of debate available during post-cloture consideration can be extended by a three-fifths vote of all senators duly chosen and sworn. Mm-hmm. Which, mm-hmm. to me, is a different number than all senators, but I could be wrong. Is it if somebody, like, when we had the Georgia senator whose term expired, right. Purdue's term expired with the previous Congress, mm-hmm. and Ossoff wasn't sworn in until Inauguration Day, and so there were only 99 senators. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that would have been two-thirds of 99, which is not different than two-thirds of 100. Uh, 66, I think, instead of 67. Yeah. I'm sorry, three-fifths vote. It's three-fifths. You're right, the three-fifths, I think, Extending debate time of cloture. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever. So many things. Anyway, so they basically, in here, all these different rules, um, suspending the rules, that requires a two-thirds vote of senators present, Mm -hmm. a quorum being present, Mm -hmm. and quorum for the Senate's 51. Mm -hmm. But I found something on here that said that they don't, really keep track of quorum unless they do a roll call vote or a quorum call so who really knows what they're doing um (laughs) i don't know like why do they decide like what's the difference between three-fifths and two-thirds there's apparently an act called the how honest leadership and open government act of 2007 Hmm. and that has some rules in it that require yeah a lot of them are three-fifths instead of two-thirds i think of two-thirds as being a supermajority, but really it's any number over simple majority simple yeah um and i found a really interesting quote about supermajorities from the national conference of state legislatures so this is about just supermajorities in general not in the senate Mm -hmm. but it says supermajorities are intended to prevent a tyranny of the majority and also encourage deliberation and compromise as proponents attempt to gather enough votes to reach supermajority which i also think kind of like the whole pop culture thing very romantic way of putting it it is like, it's meant for us all to work together while we find common ground and solutions. And I think it's more like the people who are in the minority get to decide what happens, which isn't how it ought to be. Yeah, that's the crux of the issue here. Like, your your take on the filibuster depends very much on your answer to the kinds of questions you're raising. I mean, the bottom line is, for supermajorities, some of them seem to be about however many people there ought to be in the room. Mm-hmm. And some of them are about how many people are actually in the room. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem to have any 
logic or reason following it for which of those mm-hmm. any particular type of business uses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They just kind of pick and choose when they make their own rules. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you've done this, um, if you'll forgive the phrase, deep dive into Senate rules. I think it's great. <laughs> um, because as much as you and I don't want this podcast to just be 40 minutes on parliamentary motions, um, I think that the filibuster is a great example of how tiny word changes in the rules lead to really unexpected consequences. So in the the mid to late 20th century, these filibusters were becoming more common and they were becoming more disruptive to Senate business. And so the Senate over the course of the century keeps tinkering with the rules, trying to figure out a way of minimizing how much disruption they get out of a filibuster. So initially it was, well, a two-thirds, okay, well, let's have it be two-thirds. Let's have it be, you know, what ends up being 67 senators needed to um, end the filibuster. Well, by the the mid-70s, they decided, well, that's that's too hard to achieve. Let's knock, that's a lot of people. Yeah, let's knock yeah. this down to 60. They come up with the innovation that, well, what if we have multiple pieces of legislation going at the same time? That way, if somebody's filibustering something, we can just sort of cordon it off into one part of the calendar and we can actually get stuff done with the rest of it. But the the presumption behind those rules changes was that the filibuster would be pretty rare, that um, generally speaking, the goal of the Senate was to get some stuff done. And if they can just move the rules around a little in order to let them get stuff done, um, that that would be a good thing. Well, what's happened because of those rules changes, a couple of things have happened to really encourage the filibuster unintentionally. The multi-track thing means that if somebody wants to slow down a bill with a filibuster, well, they slow down that bill, but the Senate can keep operating, which means that there's very little pain to the Senate, right? If the whole Senate could do nothing for days or weeks until this filibuster was resolved, even if it was 30 different senators trying to sustain the filibuster, it would become a bigger and bigger point of national conversation and there would be pressure on it to end. Um as it is right now, it doesn't really stop anything other than the one piece of legislation they're stopping. And unfortunately, the wording change when they decided to drop the number from 67 to 60, at least on paper, they changed, and this is why I'm really glad you used the wording you did, they changed from it being a two-thirds vote of senators present and voting to three-fifths of senators chosen and sworn. So the, mm. the old system forced a minority who wanted a filibuster to keep people in the chamber at all times. Because if there was one lone dude um, filibustering, at any moment, the majority could just swoop five or six people into the room, hold a vote for cloture, and stomp the thing forward. I think, to me, the other thing that that present thing does mm-hmm. is it allows for the minority to concede without like not going on the being record. there yeah. <laughs> that like they can be like okay well we'll just not come mm-hmm. we'll let you do your thing whatever mm-hmm. like move on yeah but when you have a fixed number that doesn't fluctuate based on who's actually right. there right now it forces it makes it much the, harder yeah now it forces the majority to marshal exactly 60 votes that 60th sen- senator senatorial vote knows that they have to be in the room and affirmatively move things forward and that makes a big difference I want to talk about the impact of the filibuster, and I think the thing that is most important to remember is that the filibuster 
adds an imbalance to an already imbalanced legislature. The Senate, by design, gives two votes to each state regardless of its size. So it's already true that half of the Senate might represent a minority of Americans and a pretty substantial right. minority of Americans. Depending on how you split things up. Exactly. Yeah. It depends on the issue. But if small states banded together, and we know that in, a, in the real world, Vermont and Wyoming are usually not on the same side of an issue. But if small states did gather together on one side of an issue, the Senate can be pretty skewed in favor of a minority of American voters. A supermajority requirement, saying that we only, you only need 41 votes in the Senate to stall business instead of 51, puts power into an even smaller collection of American voters' hands. And it really does threaten, in my opinion, the legitimacy of um, the decisions being made in the Senate because it, it simply requires way too many Americans to get behind an idea in order to make it move forward. I think that what you were saying earlier about minority, the will of the majority and the rights of the minority, I'd love, like, I'd love to hear you say a little more about how that looks when you look at the filibuster. Well, I mean, I like looking at it now, like how with the results of the Georgia Senate race, mm -hmm. the Democrats now with the presidency have majority, slim, mm -hmm. very slim majority mm -hmm. in both chambers and the presidency, and it as a just everyday American, it feels like it means that the Democratic Party ought to be able to get things done, mm -hmm. which if you're not from that party would feel scary. Mm -hmm. If that's if if those eight voices, eight extra voices, if they were enough to turn the tide and just sweeping changes happened because of that, like that would be scary to be on the other side of. Mm -hmm. And but at the same time, like forcing people to work together to find common ground when the two main parties that honestly, like all these third parties, they don't really get a lot of voice mm -hmm. anyway. Like their voices aren't heard at all, really. Right. But forcing them to work together is like forcing kids to share toys on a playground. Yeah. And like, yeah. they don't want to. They have different ideas about how to use that toy. Yeah. And there's no amount of talk that's going to convince both of them to find a common ground and use the toy in a different way. Yeah. I mean, you know, for our program, we don't have political parties, mm -hmm. which changes things. The thing that I think we don't think about enough as Americans, because we don't step outside ourselves to see it, is we have a peculiar national fascination with bipartisanship and compromise and the idea that the best governing order is one that is mostly dysfunctional <laughs> that we prize the idea that the status quo should stay the same which leaves us with a stagnant minimum wage yeah because the people rep most represented by our system are people who have certain ideas about race about class about all sorts of different things yeah it's just ridiculous and most other national democracies don't have this kind of system they use a parliamentary system in which if a party is in power, they have the ability to advance their agenda. And in fact, in most parliamentary systems, if the party in power tries to do something important to it and it can't get enough votes to pass it, 
that is seen as like a breaking point. Like that formally means that we need a new election because like how... Like your party is failing to yeah. do what it needs to do. So get out of the way yeah. and let somebody else do it. Either that or have the voters back you so so much more strenuously that you can come back right after the election and say, okay, see, they do want us to do it. And then you drive the change through. Um, and America has this sort of opposite assumption <laughs> that if one party's in power, oh, well, let's make sure there's divided power. You know, there are Americans who very consciously try to make sure that Congress and the presidency are in the hands of two different parties because we prefer that kind of a system to one in which the party in power can do what it wants. Well, and I've heard the notion that like both the parties, we, we want the same things. We just go about it differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that you're right. Like that is kind of like this American ideal of we all want the success and the American dream or whatever. Mm. But I don't, I don't know that that's actually true. And so yeah. if if people are approaching it like, oh, well, gosh, we all want the same things, but we just have different ideas. Surely we can figure something out that we can both agree with. It's like, no, if, if you want the minimum wage to be $15 an hour and somebody wants to leave it at $6 an hour, mm -hmm. there's the common ground isn't going to be there because the $15 person's not going to accept nine because nine's not enough. Right. And if you've got 41 votes in the Senate, for not raising it at all, then why right. sh why should you compromise even a little? Our system doesn't incentivize it. And I think another thing that's really important about the system we've got right now is to think about where have we made exceptions? You know, there are things that don't need to get around the filibuster. Um, so let's say you are a member of a political party whose primary goal is to appoint ideologically committed federal judges and get large tax cuts moved through the budget resolution. Well, the fact that judge nominations and budget reconciliation are two exceptions to the filibuster, that's pretty convenient for you. Um, what if we lived in a world where you needed 60 votes to appoint a judge or do anything with taxation, but um, every year the annual climate regulation bill or a bill on the subject of voting rights those are the only two exceptions where you only need 51 votes. Mm. I have a feeling there'd be a lot of Americans who would have slightly different opinions on whether we should change what the filibuster applies to it. it it's worth observing, I think, who benefits from a system like the one we have and who's harmed. Right. Yes. Yeah. You mentioned just a moment ago talking about youth and government and <laughs> what it would be like if we had a filibuster. Mm. It, is this a good spot for me to tell my story from junior year? Yeah, I mean, I think what I also mentioned was that we don't have political parties. We don't, that's true. So how a filibuster would function in our program is kind of nonsensical mm -hmm. because each individual student speaks for themselves and represents themselves mm -hmm. as a person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so a filibuster would be even more of a kind of a jerk move. Yes. To limit the entire if if we were to allow it and i don't know how we could do that but yes i love yag story time so much the way we used to count votes is the the inciting incident for this story it used to be that we would count the number of people in the chamber at the start of legislative debate on thursday and that like the whole session the whole session and so for the rest of our youth and government session However many people had been present for that count was our number and our majority and our two-thirds numbers were set, fixed in place, couldn't be changed. So what happened Saturday morning, my junior year, was my bill and a 
the bill of a friend of mine were just about to come up on the Senate docket. It was late on the Saturday morning session, but we had time to get our bills to the governor's desk. But the governor had, as I recall, vetoed a bill um, written by a delegate named Patrick. Patrick was a senior in the Senate who badly wanted to override the veto. But he looked around the room and realized that there weren't even enough people in the room to actually get a two-thirds vote if basically all of them voted with him for a veto override. So there was no way to override the veto. And Patrick was smart enough to know that there was a motion in the Rules of Order, a motion that we at the time had that is also in the real legislature called the motion to do business under the orders of the Senate. Do business under the call. Do business under the call. Thank you for the correction. Mm -hmm. So in the real world, when you make that motion, like literally the state patrol can compel legislators to come back to the chamber for a vote. In youth and government, we don't have um, a state patrol. Yeah, I guess the sergeants. I I mean, that is what functionally what happened was no one knew what to do. Um, The sergeants were supposed to like go find people, but some people had literally left Olympia. And there was no sense of, like, when is this over? Like, there's no time written down in the rules. Uh, Are we waiting until everyone's back? That was sort of how it was interpreted. Functionally, what happened is, in a very tightly packed (laughs) Saturday morning session, they lost a good 30, 40 minutes to just dealing with the chaos of this motion. It wasn't intended as a filibuster, but practically speaking... Patrick's demand was that the Senate do nothing until it could get people back to vote on a bill, and there was no way of getting those people back. My bill never made it into the Senate for debate, and therefore never made it to the governor's desk. Well, the veto override didn't happen either. And the veto override didn't happen either. Like, nothing happened. Just nothing. Everyone got nothing. (laughs) Everyone got nothing. Patrick, Patrick lost out. I lost out. Everybody lost out. It should be noted that the following year, do business under the call was one of our, what, six disallowed motions? Yes, it was added to the very short list. I assume that that also was probably the seeds of changing uh, to a rolling majority. Eventually, yes, years later. Yeah. Which, so now when you, for every single individual bill, the number of people in the seats at the beginning of it, according to the reading clerk's roster, mm-hmm. sets the majority for that bill. So if you leave the floor in the middle of that bill you're effectively voting no on that bill. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting, we've made these rules changes because youth and government believes that legislatures ought to function and ought to accomplish their aims rather than right. rather than prizing the status quo. Well, we- and I mean, so much of what we do is compressed. We have such a limited amount of time mm-hmm. as compared to real legislative bodies yeah. in the real world. Um, you know, this, the students, they come, they have one shot, it's four days, like, let's pack as much in as we can. Part of what we're trying to do is give everyone a chance to share their ideas and hear other people's ideas and offer their opinions and push through legislation. Uh, Ultimately, with what is passed and signed by the governor is kind of the voice of the youth of that year of what is important to you? Mm -hmm. What do you want to see changed in our world? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But one of our program goals is to provide training and experience through active participation in the three branches of government. Would that include going through potentially modified procedures that don't necessarily further the ability to share and discuss ideas? Mm-hmm. Since the filibuster basically silences people 
rather than engaging with them in a meaningful discussion. Um, and that would be an opposition of those goals we talked about last time with committee about like sharing ideas and hearing and discussing. But it's part of the legislative process to have all of these funky rules. I, I think the the motion that allows a limited extension of speaking time um, is a useful example, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of wholeheartedly disagree with the concept of that rule. Uh, yeah, you should say so then. But yeah, so you extend it by five minutes only. Yeah. It's a one-time motion for that bill. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure in the rules it says that you get five speakers who each get one minute. Um, it, it, it at least sets a cap of one minute personal speaking time. I don't know if it sets it exactly at five, but yeah, five minutes and one minute personal. I think it's frustrating because a lot of times there's issues where everybody wants to talk and they just want to keep talking <laughs> and nobody's saying anything different, mm-hmm. but they don't want to not get to talk. Mm-hmm. I feel like it gives people that backdoor of, well, let's set debate time at eight minutes per bill because we can always add those five minutes mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. And and the way the rule is written, um, it really only ought to be a situation where a lot of people want to talk. I would like to say that I think that our, our motto and our core values um, really are in opposition to the filibuster in, in all its guises. <laughs> to me, it's an abdication of the responsibility all of our constitutional elected officers have to see the business of the people done. Um, There have been measures that I've been very grateful were stopped by a procedural filibuster, but I have to step back from that isolated moment and acknowledge that it's not healthy for American democracy for us to gum up the works more and more. Um, That when I look around the world, it seems to me that it's much healthier for democracy, which is this thing we're helping the next generation learn, to have a system where when people are given power, they exercise that power to try and accomplish what they were elected to do. And then um, in a fair system, with fair voting, um, we ought to see the, the test of whether or not the American people endorse those decisions or not. Um, well, you know, we talked last week a little bit about Tanum wants to get rid of the call for the orders. Yeah, That's does. another way to kind of inadvertently fill it up. You can use up time. The way our rules are written, you can't, you can't delay the ultimate vote on the bill, though. There are ways in the rules to buy yourself a little time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can be used to benefit people. Um, like if you noticed that somebody was like trying to get back on the floor before we started debate on another bill so they would be able to vote mm-hmm. and if you wanted to be kind, you'd be like, Ooh, I call for the orders of the day. And it would give them like a minute to get checked in and get in. That's true. That's true. Um, so you can use, you can use your powers for good. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about the rules of order sometime. We will. We will. And, and we'll talk about political parties and YAG sometime because that would impact this the um filibustering too that was another weird year yes the party and i think it's worth noting because i just gave my little speech about the filibuster i don't think super majorities are always a bad idea um you and i have talked about the fact that we have super majorities in our own rules of order for certain kinds of motions and things we do we have to use a super majority to pass a resolution, a joint resolution, mm-hmm. which would amend the state constitution mm-hmm. because that's what the real state legislature does. Yeah. We also, I have the list. Oh, good. It is to object to consideration, mm-hmm. to call for the previous question, mm-hmm. to limit debate, mm-hmm. and to appeal the decision of the chair. 
Yeah. Those are the four that require a two-thirds majority vote. And I think what's most striking is three of those four, the objective consideration, the calling for previous question, and the limiting of debate, those are all motions that, um, if passed, tend to silence dissent or debate. So they basically give the ability for the majority to prevail. Yeah, yeah. To me, if I'm a youth and government advisor listening to this saying, what is all this talk about the filibuster for? I think it would be great to talk with your students about when are there super majorities in the rules? Let's learn them because we need to learn those motions. But also, why does that happen? How would youth and government be different if we had to have 60 or 67 or you know whatever, three-fifths or two-thirds to do other things? Um, or what if those motions were made just simple majorities? I think it's worth thinking about how the rules change the experience for both majority and minority ideas. Right. So these, this outline of parliamentary motions, do we set those? Or is that just a summary of what's in Reed's rules? It's largely a summary of Reed's, but I think we've made some adjustments over time. So we can amend them for our program. Certainly. Yeah. Ah, there you go. I think that would be interesting debate. A program resolution that applied to rules in that, on that level, we rarely see. Yes. And I think it would be interesting. We do, yeah. That would be really interesting to hear discussed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll move along to announcements. And this is when we do like to talk about what's coming up in the future. Um, We discussed taking some time to talk about uh, parliamentary procedure, how the rules work and how to use them and things like that. So we're thinking of a series, yes? You and I are agreed that there's a lot to unpack in the rules of order. And so, yeah, probably three episodes that deal with different parts of the rules of order. Um, if you have any specific questions about how parliamentary procedure works, you're welcome to email us at yagandrecreation at gmail.com. James, do you have anything to add? No, nothing to add. All right. Well, we'll be back again in a week then. Thank you for listening to this episode of Yag and Recreation, an Up Till Two Productions podcast. Yag and Recreation is co-written and co-hosted by my sister, Anna Hazen, and by me, James Rosenzweig, and edited solely by the multi-talented Anna Hazen. Thanks also go to Tanum Fotheringo, our program and coolness consultant, to Jeff Hazen for composing and recording our introductory music and providing on-call technical support, and to Ben and Sam Hazen for additional incidental music and fully artist work. We'll see you next week. And that's all for today.